0: Thank you for listening to Truth In Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church, because we believe that God's word is truth and that his truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be with all of you. Welcome to the attic. You all found us okay. You know, you knew how to get here want to welcome you to our, our next series in the Truth in Life. This is module number five, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful that you brought us here this morning. You've given us breath. You've given us the ability to walk upstairs. You've given us uh, uh, voices to praise you and worship you throughout the day today on this Lord's Day. Father, be with us as we study your character and your word. Uh, be with me, Lord. I ask that you guard what I say and what I think during this time. Pray that this next 45 minutes would glorify you in, in all that we do in Jesus name we pray amen all right well welcome everyone for those of you who don't know me my name is Mike Arndt I'm one of the elders here at the church and I am one of the teachers for the truth in life series and it's great to be with all of you um, before I forget and I will forget I will not be here next week Ken Wegren will be filling in for me I'll be out of town so he will be uh, teaching from the next chapter in the book and he'll be filling in for me so he may change up the way he does it a little bit but that is, uh, um, he'll be here and I'll be back two weeks from today. Uh, I know that different teachers have stuck to the framework of the book differently, so what I learned in previous times is that I just bring a copy of the book the first time to show you what we're using. This is Dr. Frame, John Frame's book. Dr. Frame is still alive. I believe he's essentially retired now and his book is called Systematic Theology, so I'm actually just using six of his chapters on, his, on God's word as the basis for our six, next six classes together. It's an interesting book. It is, uh, what I learned after I got it was that you can actually get it on your Kindle. Which So I carried this book around an awful lot of cities traveling for work this, this past summer as I was preparing for the study. And I, I think if I could do it again, I might use the Kindle. But a little known fact about the book is, if you put this book on your Kindle, it actually makes your Kindle heavier. So that's, uh, and, and, And not a lot of people know that, so that's the first thing you learned in this class. Um, Also, and it may change next week with Ken, but uh, Tanner is your uh, ambassador who's been following you along and he'll be handing out the handouts every week. The handouts have blanks on them, if you notice. Do you have blanks on your handout? Okay, good, we got the right version of it. Um, It's up to you whether you wanna follow along with the blanks. What I do on the PowerPoint is I put the words in yellow when it's a blank on your handout. So what you don't have to do is sit, sit there and stare at your handout during the whole class and say, I wonder when this blank is going to come up. You can feel free just to look at the screen, you can use, not use the handouts at all if you don't want, but when you see a yellow word on the screen, that's the next blank on your handout. So that's the way uh, that I do it. Ken, Ken may take a different approach next week. So we're gonna go through six consecutive uh, weeks in the book and really, if I had to say what we're doing together the next six weeks is we're studying God's word. We are now you could argue that every class is using scripture references so everything uses God's word to support it but we're going to focus on the character of God's word and it's interesting because when you're studying God's word you're studying God because he is his word right it's the name of our church if you turn around and look on this concrete wall behind you you see a bunch of conduit junction boxes up at the top why are those there any idea we have a lit sign that's on the front of our building and the sign is Christ the Word, right? So the very name of our church speaks to the character of God being one and the same with his word. And we'll, we'll spend a lot of time talking about that and we'll spend six weeks talking about how God's word gets from him to our hearts and minds. And it's actually, it's actually a fairly detailed number of steps and I've never really thought of it that way until I prepared for this class. So we have these six weeks and this week is the first one which is God and his word. Now. As I was asked to, to teach this class last spring, then suddenly when you're asked to teach something, then suddenly everything you do and everywhere you go says, well, how am I gonna teach this? What am I gonna do? And the first week after I was asked to teach this class, I took a trip, I think I was in Southern Indiana at the time, and I came to a rest area and I saw this building and I walked through it and this is what I saw. So what's going on here? Somebody's right. off there's obviously either some history or some concern that somebody may try to take these. So, what did they do, they put like an extra lock on the machine? Not that maybe, but, but what do you see here? I've never seen this anywhere else I've ever stopped before. A very, I was in a rural area, part of southern Indiana, it didn't seem like a dangerous place, but they'd obviously had some problems. Somebody thinks somebody's gonna not just break into the machine, they think they're gonna tip it over, they think they're gonna try to steal it. There's, somebody believes something that caused them to put up a pretty, a reinforced fortress around that machine, right? So what, what we learn there is actions are always based on beliefs. In other words, beliefs determine action. So if you see this bridge in the upper left-hand corner, for you to walk on that bridge, you have to believe that whoever designed and built it did it right, it's gonna support your weight, it's not gonna fall, it's not gonna to sway too much and make you dizzy. Uh, in, I think this is downtown Chicago, but there is a high-rise building that has a plexiglass uh, Section that steps out so you can actually step out in there and look down straight down. I wouldn't do it Some people would but if you're doing that like those people are you believe That whoever designed it and built it built it strong enough to secure you. It's not dangerous. You won't get hurt Not my cup of tea, but some here might might want to do that This morning You had two options. It would have been a cold option But you could have gone golfing this morning and there probably was a golf course that would have taken your money somewhere In the area but you ended up coming to the church here so ultimately if i ask you why are you at church right now you believe being here is is more important more worthwhile than being on the golf course it may be that your parents told you you have to go to church you'd rather be golfing or sleeping or doing something else this morning but ultimately it's important as we study theology that we always keep in mind that our actions are always the result of our beliefs Ultimately, theology is nothing more than the study of character of God. I need a couple who've been married a short period of time sitting toward the front who is okay if I ask them a few questions because when you ask that question in front of a bunch of people, they all almost have to say yes, right? Stephanie, do you love your husband? The early questions are easy. There's only one right answer, okay? Yes. Do you know anything about his character? And as you were dating him, as you were getting to know him, was understanding the qualities and character important to you? Okay. So you love him, but you also studied his character as you grew to love him. Is that fair? See, it was really easy. I wasn't going to embarrass you. If somebody said, no, I didn't study his character, I have to find another couple. So You say you love Jesus, and you say, well, I don't even think I want to study theology. Well, you've come, this is the fourth class you've gone to so the fact that you got up this morning showed up here I think means you probably do want to study theology but the reality is if you say you love your spouse we'd always say that somebody I I knew something about this person's character before I married him or her well if you say well I just love Jesus I don't want to study theology wouldn't you say it's wise to study the character of someone you love so if you claim to love Jesus it makes perfect sense to study his character and theology is nothing more than studying the character of God. So I'd encourage you, if you've not gone to enough of these classes yet, to convince yourself that it's worth your while. I would argue that it is worth your while. The other extreme with theology, well, I'm not, let me go in the order of my slides. Every week I introduce a big word, because people who like to, sometimes people who like theology like big words. I'm not going to use any more big words in this class than I have to, but what we'll do is we'll take an opportunity to learn one big word or one or two big words every week. The first one is sesquipedalian. It actually can be used as a noun or an adjective. And a sesquipedalian often describes someone who likes to use big words. The Latin translation is a yard and a half. So in other words, a really long word that would be a yard and a half long. If you wrote it out on a piece of paper. So, for those who embrace theology because they get to say bad, big words that, like many of us don't know, you can call them a sesquipedalian. And that's one of our big words for the week. Second big word of the week is epistemological, relating to the theory of knowledge, especially with regards to its methods, validity, scope, and distinction between justified belief and opinion. If that definition means nothing to you, let me get to the illustration later in the class. We'll sit tight on it, but it's a like a seven-syllable word, something like that. So it's, you drop, drop the, either sesquipedalian with your friends and family next week or epistemological, and you'll be able to convince them that you're practically a theologian. I'm joking about this because I don't think theology is about using big words, although there will be a few big words that come up in the course of the class. So we can swing to one extreme and say, I don't want to study theology. I just love Jesus, right? I don't think it makes time it's not worth my while the other part is we can take our knowledge of theology and beat up other people who don't know as much as we do and that's an error on the other side first corinthians 8 1 says now concerning these things sacrifice to idols we know that we all have knowledge knowledge makes arrogant but love edifies if you're not studying theology without a genuine love for god and a love for those whom you'd share what you've learned with then you just have knowledge and knowledge makes you arrogant according to scripture so uh we don't want to swing our error in the other direction either. We don't wanna get so, so intense in our study of theology that we just use the knowledge we learn to make ourselves seem smarter than somebody else. But we also don't wanna disregard the study and say that God's character doesn't matter to us. We wanna split the difference and learn about the character of God without trying to see how many big words we can spout off in a theological conversation with our friends and family, right? That, that's my goal, is to split that difference and do what we're supposed to do here. Now, I read that passage. What I do like to do in this class is ask for volunteers to read scripture verses when they're on the screen. It gives me an idea to think about what I'm gonna say next and I can take a drink of water sometimes. And so that's, that's helpful, also keeps some of you awake who are inclined to fall asleep. What I learned is I've gotta make the print bigger than I've made it, so those in the front uh, may, may, may wanna volunteer more, but if you've got good eyes wherever you're sitting, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna call on anybody to read, because some people don't like reading out loud in public and I respect that. But I'm going to ask for volunteers to read a lot of the screens I show over the next six weeks. So our outline today is God's speech, God's truth, and God's word to us. So number three begins to move the path down toward our hearts, our ears, our minds. But we'll talk about, if we're, so we'll study the character of God's word today. Because when we're studying the character of God's word, we're studying the character of God. Because he is his word. All right. So let's talk about how he uses his word. And again, scripture will serve as our basis for for proving the points that we attempt to make. There's sort of a circular pattern to God's word in scripture. The first is, and this is the first blank in your handout, is God's word announces what he will do. The second is he acts. And then as you look at what would be the next blank on your handout, by further words, he interprets what he has done and announces further actions. So let's take a look at both a micro and a macro example of that, and I'll look for some volunteers for reading here in just a second. Let's let's look at it graphically first. First of all, God's word announces what he'll do, he acts, and by further words, he interprets what he has done and announces further actions. So in that third slice of the pizza here, what you see is, He's doing things that go back retroactively to what he's already done, and he explains it, but then he also goes proactively and talks about what he'll do next. There's a circular pattern to God's word in Scripture that we often see. Um, what's interesting is God's word and his acts align perfectly. If you say, well, yeah, mom, I'll clean my room tomorrow. Sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. Yeah, kids, I'll spend time with you on Saturday when I'm not working. And sometimes that happens, and sometimes it doesn't. Our words and our actions don't always line up because we're fallen creatures. God's word and his actions are always perfectly aligned. When I'm jumping ahead of myself here a little bit, but it isn't wonderful that we serve a God whose words and actions line up perfectly. In fact, his words set things into actions. It creates things. It moves creation around. Uh, If our words matched our actions, we would never have to sign a contract because people would believe what we said our character, we should endeavor to have our character be more like God and make his, our words exactly line up with our actions. Okay, so let's, let's take an example. We're not going to read these passages. I, I learned the first time through that my, my first class was my practice class, just like my older kids were my practice kids. And, and, and so what I learned is I had way too many slides and way too many things to read to get through in 45 minutes. So I've cut some of these down a little bit, and we'll, we'll skip a little fast through some of them. But but you know this, and you're reminded of it from our study in small group, for those of you who are in our small groups right now, that God's, God tells Noah of a coming flood, and that's found in Genesis chapter 6. The flood comes, Genesis 7 and 8, and subsides, and then God interprets the implications of the flood and initiates a, a new covenant and declares future events, Genesis 8 and 9. Now, for most of us who have read scripture for any length of time, that's a fairly that's an early place to go when you start reading God's word. So it's a passage that you're familiar with and we don't need to spend time on it necessarily right now. We, need, we don't need to spend time on it if we're actually gonna get through the class today. So uh, you see Genesis six, seven, and eight. And again, I don't, I don't believe there's a need to prove that to you, but what I'll say is you know, from Genesis 9, 11, I established my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Emphasis on God's word being perfect, that no matter how much rain we get and how much our sump pump runs and how full the, the uh, storm sewers are right now, that God has promised that he will never flood and destroy the earth again. And, and isn't it wonderful that we have words that we can live by that we know are going to be true? So let's take a, a, a more macro example. The Old Testament announced the coming of Christ to redeem his people. The Gospels narrate the fulfillment of that announcement. And then the rest of the New Testament interprets the event and announces further events to come. So we have the micro example of the flood with Noah and God speaking to Noah about what's going to happen. God follows through and it happens, and then he interprets what's happened and talks about what's gonna happen in the future. Exact same thing at a macro level with all of scripture. The Old Testament announces that Christ will come, prophecies all throughout, types of Christ all through the Old Testament. The Gospels narrate the fulfillment of that announcement, and the rest of the New Testament interprets the event and announces events to come. All right, so now we're digging in. God's speech. What is God's word, and what does it do? We've got some more blanks for you here coming up on your handout. First of all, God's word is his speech. Speech is the next blank word by which he expresses and therefore reveals himself. Now that, in those ways, He's a lot like us, right? We could argue that our speech uh, is, is our word, because that's true. We express ourselves and we reveal ourselves through the word, right? You learn an awful lot about somebody by talking to them, don't you? Even if they're trying to mislead you, you learn an awful lot about people. Praise God, his word is always a perfect revelation of his character. I may try to impress you. I may try to convince you that I can do things I can't do, but you spend enough time talking to me and then spending enough time watching my actions follow behind that. You know quickly whether I'm a straight shooter or not. So again, we learn if I could could I get a volunteer to read Genesis 1, 1, and 2 for me, please. You, you don't even need to raise your hand, guys. You can just step out, just start reading out loud if you want to take it on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Thank you. Alright, now volunteer for Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. He the waters of the sea, the sea. He lays up the for to Focus on verse 9 there. Think about the power of God's word. He spoke and it was done. How many times is a leader I'd like to have that happen, that it doesn't happen. Hey, kids, we got to get the yard cleaned up today. (laughs) Happens sometimes, doesn't happen sometimes. Um, And sometimes my words aren't faithful to my actions either. I fail people. Praise God that we serve a God. His character is that when he speaks, it's done. He commands and it stood fast. All right, next blank on your handout is God's word directs the course of providence. And there's really two components to that. There's creation and the course of creation. So back to Genesis 1, God's word created things. The word created in the Hebrew is a word that means made something from nothing. We, we create a craft when we're little kids. We create a, a shed in our backyard because we did a home equity loan so we can buy lumber at $8 a two by four. And we and we uh, begin to build something right now. We say, I created that shed. No, you didn't. You took pieces of wood and some hardware and some power tools, and you moved it into a different form. God creates with his word. Volunteer for Job 37, and that's actually not just verse 12. I've got an error there. whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. Think about everything that happens just from God speaking. It's incredible to dwell on his word and the power in it. And then, of course, once we do, do we really believe that his word's powerful? Let's go, let's tie beliefs back to actions again. So how often do you read God's word? If his word is powerful, how much time do you spend Meditating on it, reading, it, talking to others about it, sharing what you've learned that day, talking to somebody about a passage that's confusing to you. Remember, if there's confusion in God's Word, the problem's ours, it's not His. All right, more blanks. What's God's Word and what does it do? God's Word directs the course of providence, it is involved in everything that He does His decrees, His creation, His redemption, and judgment. Not only revelation. He performs all of his acts by his speech. God's word is the catalyst for everything that happens on earth. If I went too fast there, I'll go back. Decrees, creation, redemption, and judgment, and then speech are the blanks. All right, so let's take a look here. We're not gonna read this passage. What we'll do is refresh your memory. Centurion who has a slave was sick and he was about to die. And we know the account. If you go to the latter portion of the account, focus on the bold words there. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion knew enough about the character of God, knew enough about the power of his word, knew enough about who Jesus is That he knew he could say to Jesus, but just say the word, and my servant shall be healed. Do not trouble yourself further up a little bit, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. He speaks of his own worthiness relative to Jesus, but he also speaks of the fact that I know God's word is powerful enough that Jesus doesn't have to be physically present in my house for my slave to be healed. So you see throughout scripture, people recognizing the power of God's word. That's just one illustration and example. All right, then finally, a few more blanks on your handout. God and his word are always present together. An incredibly important point is what's your posture when God's word is read, either aloud or whether you're reading God's word? Because if God and his word are one and the same, then wherever God's word is read, God is present. So do you take the reading of God's word seriously when it's done in church, when it's done right before a sermon, when you're reading God's word, when someone's reading it to you? 'Cause God if, if God's word is being read, He is present there. God and His Word are always present together. So then we have the Word and Spirit together. Let's give several examples of that. Could I have someone read Isaiah fifty nine twenty one for me, please? Okay, so God's word and his spirit come together. Isaiah was a man who prophesied primarily to people who didn't listen to him, but God ordained that his words would be written down so generations after him would listen. And we'll, we'll unpack Isaiah a little bit more in future weeks. How about from 1 Thessalonians 1.5? Let's take a New Testament example of this. I volunteer to read this, please. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know, Okay, there's a whole 45 minutes in that one verse, right? This is Paul speaking to the church at Thessalonica. His gospel was word, but it wasn't in word only, but also in power and in the Spirit and with full conviction. We'll talk about the Holy Spirit in depth in week six. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So the word and the Spirit come together, right? And we have God's word for those who are not his children, still having an effect because hearts are hardened right if you don't change as a result of reading god's word and hearing it read you should be concerned right because those who are children of god should be changed by his word every time it's read so all right so god is a speaking god if i've not made that point any other way i want to make it right now he speaks to us he speaks to himself and that's a mystery Anybody who's teaching you theology and so I'm going to explain everything to you is lying to you. Their words and their actions don't line up because ultimately I'm trying to explain God. So at some point there's a line and I can't, I don't, I'll say to you, I don't know. It's a matter of faith. I'll probably say that almost every week. I'll say, I don't know how to explain this. I don't know how to prove this to you. It's a work of the Holy Spirit enlightening your heart so that you believe. But God is a speaking God. He speaks to us and he speaks to himself. And that's a lot of our study of God's word. We know three persons, one God. Very hard to understand the Trinity. I think it's very hard to understand. I understand it more than I used to, but I don't, I'm not going to pl- claim to you that I fully understand how three persons can be one God. There's a mystery to it. I trust in God that it's true, and believing it makes sense to me. But he also speaks to himself. I don't know, we don't know how he speaks to himself. There's a mystery to that. But God ultimately speaks to men, primarily prophets and apostles, but not always. Scripture is mostly transcribed by prophets and apostles with some interesting exceptions. But he speaks to people, and ultimately they understand it because they write it down. So he gets it into Hebrew, he gets it into Greek, he gets it into Aramaic, the language of the people at the time that the scripture was composed. So there's a mystery to it. How does God's word get to people? We'll spend several weeks talking about that. Uh, Let's look for a volunteer here for for, for this passage, please, which I somehow... Uh, It's two part. Uh, It's a two, you're reading, you're committing to read for two screens if you commit here. So just to, I don't want to bait and switch you. There'll be another screen you have to read after this. All right, interesting contrast in Psalm 115 between our God and all the false gods, small g, that exist. Our God speaks. No other God speaks. In fact, uh, the, the deity of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Greek and modern philosophy don't speak to human beings. God's speech brings him to us through his law, his wisdom, and his love, which is normative, situational, and existential you Consider God's Word as a treasure? I've asked that question in different ways several times already. If you did nothing else in this class but came away with a different view of how you read God's Word and what you do after you read it, then this, that's a victory, right? One thing in six weeks would be great. All right, just as a, a pause here for a second, uh, for those of you, this is a, the gentleman on the left is, is Dr. Frame. Uh, you'll see a lot of what I present in the coming weeks in threes because this is a man, his, his website, which is the screenshot from, has the eyeglasses with the three lenses on it. Uh, he, he uses the word per, tri-perspectival, which I don't use until week six because it's hard for me to say. But it, it's, uh, it's, he takes, he, he looks at, just as the Trinity is, is a triplet, a triad, he looks at a lot of. Uh, of God's character in, in light of three, so I, I probably should put that slide earlier. But so as we're summarizing God's speech, what do we say? It's an attribute of God. Next blank is the word attribute. It's the second person of the Trinity. See John 11. See the sign on the front of our building. And any and all of His specific communications addressed either to the Trinitarian persons or to creatures. So we have this mystery of how God speaks to Himself in the Trinity to three persons but he also speaks to us as creatures. We'll focus our attention on the creature portion of that for the coming weeks. So then we have God's truth, and we say, well, what's truth? It's just something that's not a lie, right? But there's different kinds of truth. So there's three different meanings in Scripture of truth. Truth can be metaphysical. It can be epistemological. There's our big word. Or it can be ethical. So do those three words mean anything to you? Let me give a few examples to try to help you out with that. Epistemological, we gave this definition a little bit before, it's a, it's a, if I had to describe it to you, I'd say it's, it's language that represents reality. Let me try one more, try another example. So we talk about, in scripture, there's metaphysical, epistemological, and ethical truth. Up on the screen is a $5 bill. If I tell my granddaughter Lucy, who's two years old, I am giving you $5, and I give her a real $5 bill, she's perfectly happy with me. If I give her a monopoly $5 bill, she's perfectly happy with me. No difference with a two-year-old. I can get away with monopoly money to a two-year-old. All right? Metaphysically, our, our government backs up a $5 bill and says it is worth $5 in goods or services if you hand this piece of paper over to somebody. We all get that. That's a metaphysical truth. It's a truth whether you believe it or not. It's a truth whether I believe it or not. So metaphysical truth. Epistemological truth, for Lucy, two-year-old granddaughter Lucy, the $5 bill being worth $5 in goods and services is not yet an epistemological truth. Because I gave her a fake $5 bill, or I could, and she's just as happy. She doesn't think there's, she has any less going on. My 10-year-old son Daniel has made it an epistemological truth that a monopoly $5 bill is not worth $5 in goods and services. And he would say to me, which speaking is the heart of epistemological truth, dad, you're messing with me. That's not $5. An ethical truth is then what you put into action as a result of it being a metaphysical truth and you making it epistemological truth. So Daniel takes the $5 to the store and buys candy with it. Because he's already made it a metaphysical truth where he can speak to the truth and say, dad, that's, that monopoly $5 bill's not worth anything. It's a metaphysical truth, whether it's Lucy's opinion or Daniel's opinion, because the government has said that that piece of paper is worth $5 in goods and services. One way I can explain this, scripture, we'll we'll apply it to scripture in a minute, but if you're trying to keep three terms straight in your head as a different kind of truth, there is that truth that just exists in the world, there's the truth that we begin to verbalize as we believe it, and you see the progression from one to two to three, right? Then you have the ethical truth where you live your life as if it were true. All right, let's, go, let's get back to scripture. Uh, if you want to think, another way of thinking of metaphysical truth is, is thinking of, of it being value, of it being, if I could give you fool's gold or give you real gold and you had a way to know, the real gold is truth, the fool's gold is a lie. Metaphysical could also be called genuine. So Jeremiah 10, 9 and 10, beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Upaz. The work of a craftsman in the hands of a goldsmith Violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. Back to truth, verse 10. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we have other examples we'll pass through here, but they are in your handout. So epistemological truth. The psalmist is simply expressing verbally the fact that God is truth. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Do you see the difference? Now we have someone speaking about the character of God, speaking that he indeed is true. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. What changed in your life as a believer when God's word became epistemological truth for you, when you said, this is true. There's something about verbalizing a truth that that it begins to internalize it for you, right? Yeah, I see this. My life is off track right now. What God's Word says is the way I should be going. There's a time where most of us in our testimony, and maybe for some people here who are very young, maybe you're not there yet, where you just say, yeah, I got to start doing this. This is true. What God's Word said is right. This isn't a joke. This isn't something that some some strange people believe right it's an epistemological truth when that happens all right I got a roll here there, there is this strange caveat none of you have been in Matt McClavick's class yet right or you have okay you guys covered chapter 14 the mystery of evil the Lord said to him how and he said I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all the prophets then he said you are to entice him and also prevail go and do so And then one other interesting example, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence that they will believe what is fake. Those two verses are often used to say, well, how can God be true when he's actually advocating for deception in certain situations? The mystery of evil is a mystery. But I want to put those two passages up just to illustrate, those would be an exception someone might come to me with after class. All right, so, Frame says something on page 527 of his book that I tried to say at the beginning, but he says it's better. He says it better. It is our deeds that tell the world what we really believe to be true. If your faith is only in your head right now, I would argue it's not faith. Well, I believe in God. Well, the demons believe and shudder, right? Uh, uh, If I'm living, if my life, if my faith, my walk is nothing more than in my head right now, oh, I read that in scripture today, I I believe it. But if if your words don't say that and your actions don't say that, I would argue that if it doesn't become an ethical truth for you, an epistemological truth, it's always a metaphysical truth, whether you believe it or not. But in the end, the ethical truth is how you live out your life every day. And what you say ultimately becomes less important than what you do, although you should be saying it also. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father, right? There is that, as you ha- if you have children, and you're waiting to see if they're walking with the Lord, What they say matters a little, but what they do matters a lot, right? You want to see that your children have made God's metaphysical truth an ethical truth. That's ultimately what we want to say. We want to see them walking the walk and not not just talking the talk at the epistemological level. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Okay, but ethical truth applies to God as well. If you look at Deuteronomy, the rock, his word is perfect, All his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. His work is perfect. Ethical truth applies to God as well. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's faithful in his actions, in his work. All right, so one, I'm beating a dead horse here for you. Metaphysical truth is genuineness. Think of real gold versus fool's gold. Epistemological truth faithfully represents what is genuine, typically with our words. Ethical truth emerges naturally from the other two. God calls us to not only speak the truth, but also to live it. So you see that migration. If you wanna think of it one more way, graphically, if that helps you, if you're more of a picture person, think of ethical truth being in the core of what we believe. Epistemological tr- uh, truth sp- expands from that as we begin to speak God, the truth about God. And then metaphysical truth is actually us walking the walk every day and doing what we say we believe. So you want to see all three in your life. All right, finally, God's word to us. We're beginning this path slowly where God's word comes from him and gets to us. And that's the next five weeks. And we're going to talk about God's lordship attributes just about every Every week. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time to, dis- to define that today in the time that we have left. First, there's God's controlling power. What we might call His, what we will call in future weeks is His omnipotence. But the blank on your handout is the word power. God's word never leaves us the same. We hear it for better or worse. I jumped ahead and talked about this earlier, right? The children of God will see their hearts hardened, or excuse me, they, those who are not children of God will see their hearts hardened by the reading of God's word. Those who are His children, see real change and ultimately sanctification. There's God's supreme authority. An authoritative word is one that imposes obligations on those who hear, often uh, thought of as his omniscience. And then God's presence with his creatures, his omnipotence. We survey God who is close to us, who speaks with us, who is always there. Wherever God's word is, there is God. So if you're reading God's word, God is there. Uh, we'll talk about God's controlling power first in the three parts of the lordship attributes first his blessing honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you how many parents have quoted that verse to their children speaking that their very life depends on them being honored by them a couple more examples leviticus 18:5 so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them i am the lord God controls how long you and I will live, and he will bless you if you keep his statutes and judgments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is the flip side. This is the curse side, not the blessing side. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Have you thought about that lately? All right, and this is back to Isaiah. We keep, we'll get examples all through these six weeks of Isaiah, it Isaiah speaking God's word and it hardening the hearts of the belligerent people he was called to prophesy to. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. God's word does one of the two things every time. All right, I'm going to need to go forward here a little bit. Let's talk about God's supreme authority, the second part of the lordship attributes an authoritative word is one that imposes obligations on those who hear. If you are a parent or you have still living with your parents on either side of that relationship, an authoritative word is one that imposes obligations on those who hear. A heavenly father and an earthly father will both impose obligations with their words. So God's authority includes tasks to perform. Could I ask someone to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 30, please. Okay, so God's supreme authority includes him making commands upon his people. We are to be fruitful and multiply in the obvious way and in every other way as well, right? In terms of having children and in terms of uh, living a life where we have fruit in our lives, uh, regardless of our age or our phase in life, in terms of glorifying him. He announces probation. Can I have someone read Genesis 2, 16 and 17? A warning there, a a probation should his command not be followed. And then this print's a little bit on the smaller side, but let's, uh, I'll, I'll read this one. Consequences. Then to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread if, till, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So every single day, every one of us has the consequence of that punishment from God for, for, the, for the sin of Adam. And then finally, considering the Lord, God's lordship attributes, last blank on your handout, I think, God's presence with his creatures. God is omnipresent. He is with you and with me, in a very personal way. Scripture that, def- that defends that, how about Deuteronomy 4 7 through 8? Could I get a volunteer to read that, please? <clears throat> what great nation is there that has a God so near to it, as is the Lord our God, whenever we call it? What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments, and righteousness, and the whole law which I am setting before you today? Okay. So, in the midst of, of Moses speaking of. of God's law being given to God's people. There's a comparison with the other nations, right? Who don't have what what God's people have. And And he's describing those nations, so it's a small g there. Has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him. So think about what we've talked about today. God's word is true. It's actually the definition of genuineness. His words and his actions always align perfectly. Yet he brings those words to us in a personal, close way. And his statutes and righteousness and judgments, this God who's close to us brings us these very good judgments, these things by which we'll live if we follow and we'll die if we don't. Praise God. All right, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. Could I have a volunteer to read this, please? So we have two very important parts of god's character and the character of his word on display in the passage that nate just read for us it's not too hard to do it's not too far away anticipating excuses almost right i I just can't do this yes you can says right here that you can will you be perfect no will you repent yes lord willing it's not too far away because we have a god who is omnipresent His word is with us, around us, incorporated into us. If you think about the Holy Spirit, it's it's with us every moment. It's not too far away. It's not too hard to do. All right, we'll end with Romans 10, 6 through 8. I have a volunteer to read this, please. Okay, so we have here, we have Paul to his his letter to the Roman church, recapitulating what we just read in Leviticus. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, which are his words, still inspired by the Holy Spirit, that are added on. A, A New Testament example here. What we bring to you is close. What you hear in a sermon in a few minutes is relevant to you where you are today. These are not simply mental exercises that we go through as we talk about our faith, right? The truth should be metaphysical. It is metaphysical. It is true, whether we believe it or not. It's epistemological. We should be talking about this truth that we believe. And perhaps most important, it has to be an ethical truth. We have to live it out every day. So next time you read God's word, let's look at it that way. Let's examine the genuineness, the truth in it. Let's speak about it to others, both those who know Jesus and those who don't. And let's live it out, right? That's your homework for the week. And we are right at 10 o'clock, so let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray now for Ken as he leads this group next week. I pray for him in his preparation for this. Lord, I ask that, uh, uh, that, that we would all be people who make your truth, your word, a part of what we do and say in every waking moment that we have. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to Truth In Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is Truth To Live By.